If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey, it's Jane. Before today's show, I just want to take a minute to tell you about another show from Time's Opinion. It's called First Person. It's hosted by my colleague, Lulu Garcia Navarro, who has spent her career getting people to open up and tell their story. And the newest episode of the show is about something we've all reckoned with, school shootings. But the thing about the show is that they find someone with a perspective most of us haven't heard before. So in this most recent episode, Lulu talks to the sheriff of Utah County, Mike Smith, because Sheriff Smith's passion project is teaching teachers how to conceal carry in the classroom. He trains teachers how to protect their students for the minutes before police arrive at the school. And Lulu goes to that training. And I'm telling you about this episode now, because if you listen today, you'll be ready for their new episode tomorrow, which follows a teacher who took Sheriff Smith's class and is deciding whether to conceal carry in the classroom. So download and subscribe to the show, First Person, wherever you're listening to this. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Coaston. At this point in the midterm election cycle, it's possible your email inbox, texts, phone calls, and DMs look a lot like mine. Hi, Jane. It's Martin Sheen. It's John Legend. It's Barbara Streisand. It's Kerry Washington. It's Barack Obama. Jane, it's almost too late. Our nation needs you. For the price of one copy. Your $3 can make all the difference. Will you please rush $5 right now to keep Georgia blue? Georgia blue. Can we count on your immediate support to stay ahead of the Democrat machine? If we don't step up, we will lose. It's over. We're done. 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 Is there anything we can say to convince you to donate any amount to our campaign? It's giving college alumni office outreach season. It's giving desperate texting from the bar at 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's making me want to throw my phone into the ocean. In theory... A grassroots campaign strategy is a good thing, right? Small donations are the way everyday people get to have their say in who their candidates are. This is a democratic answer to super PACs and lobbyists and so-called dark money. But what if grassroots campaigning is bad? In fact, what if grassroots fundraising is dragging our democracy to its death by allowing extremist candidates to self-fundraise their way into Congress and driving us all insane? That's the case Tim Miller, a former Republican strategist and current writer-at-large at at the Bulwark, made in a recent guest essay for Time's Opinion. He says it's not just the fringe candidates that are doing this, and that's a big problem. You have to be incredibly annoying in order to get money. I mean, there are very few exceptions to this, but even, like, mainstream politicians on both sides, the only way to get money is to inflame and annoy. My other guest, Miha Sifri, writes a newsletter about democracy, tech, and social movements. And he says small dollar donations actually enable some politicians to make our democracy better. On the left, what small donor fundraising is allowing is for some people to get into Congress and then be able to grill corporate chieftains, bankers, pharmaceutical executives and so on, and not worry that they have to still go back to them when it comes time to raise money. And just a quick note, I talked with Miha and Tim while I was down in Sydney, Australia. So if I sound a little different, it's because I was recording Upside Down. 
Tim, Mika, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Jane. Pleasure to be here. So before we get into your disagreement about whether grassroots fundraising is to blame for the noxious state of American politics, or at least the noxious state of the inbox I never check, Mika, I want to get some perspective. Sure. Like, Dwight D. Eisenhower wasn't saying, like, (laughs) if you just send me 10 more dollars, we can fend off communism. You know, FDR was not like, if you give me 10 cents, I'll finally beat Herbert Hoover. Give me a wooden nickel. Right. Yeah. So, like, what was the before time like? What did it used to be like? Well, I think it depends how far back you want to go. Probably not Herbert Hoover. (laughs) I mean, the first big money campaign was the 1890s, actually. uh, And Mark Hanna, who was a Republican fundraiser, famously said there are two things that are important in politics. One is money, and I forget what the second one is. But he was raising money from fat cats. He was raising money from monopolists and, you know, railroad barons and so on. Mm -hmm. In the 50s and 60s, what you have is the beginnings of mass campaigning with things like television the first televised debate being 1960 between uh, Kennedy and Nixon. And the first, I would say, appearance of mass fundraising is direct mail. So, you know, by the 1970s, you're not being deluged by email, you're being deluged by paper mail. George McGovern famously financed his campaign in 1972 by writing a very long and and heartfelt seven-page letter that went out to hundreds of thousands of Democrats. I love that. I love a letter being like, please give me money. (laughs) Right. How many TikToks would, if we took the pages and made it into a series of TikToks, I wonder how many that would be. (laughs) I I bet McGovern would be good on TikTok if he were still around. Um, It isn't all that different that we have had a kind of mass fundraising on both sides that press donors' hot buttons But it really didn't take off until 2004, primarily because in those early years of the web, people were getting used to the idea of just using their credit card to buy things online. So it's really eBay and Amazon that get a lot of people accustomed to this notion that if I put my credit card here, I'm not going to suddenly get ripped off. It's okay to buy something this way, and then it becomes okay to donate that way. And the number of people who donate to presidential campaigns between 2000 and 2004 went up by about tenfold. Tim, you worked on a bunch of conservative campaigns and strategies, and you've declared once and for all that it is time to stop worshiping the grassroots dollar. What is so awful about grassroots campaign fundraising? When do you think that grassroots donations went wrong? Mostly, I guess I would point to the unintended consequences of my love, John McCain's campaign finance (laughs) bill with Russ Feingold would be probably the place that we start uh, going the wrong direction. That was the uh, 2002 bill that banned unlimited, unregulated contributions from corporations, unions and individuals to political parties. Yes, I think that there were some nice sentiments about, you know, wanting to get corruption out of the system, limit the amount of money that bigger donors can give to candidates. But in doing so, 
campaigns weren't going to decide to start spending less money. So they had to come up with other means in which to raise money. And it created a couple of scourges. One, it just made fundraising like the central activity for most politicians. And a lot of their time is spent around fundraising. I think that there are some pernicious side effects to that. But then also created some negative incentives. I think one of them that I get into in the article is that what we saw very quickly, uh, beginning with Joe Wilson, when he shouted, you lie at Barack Obama during a joint address to Congress, and then realized that he could raise a ton of money. Within 12 days, he raised more money, sending out appeals to all the conservative lists he could buy than he'd raised in his entire campaign before that. Very quickly then, there were a lot of imitators who realized that all of a sudden they could raise big gloms of cash by being obnoxious and shouting things about the people they hate. And I think that as a result of the decreased power, maybe the well-intentioned decreased power of bigger givers, politicians were then incentivized to do everything they could to get small dollar money. And usually, not entirely, that has tended to be saying things that are inflammatory, doing things that are going to get people to retweet you and post you on Facebook, spreading conspiracies, spreading mistruths. And so it has created a just a different type of grift and a different type of corruption rather than the old company X gives you 20 grand in the hopes that you kill Amendment Y. It sounds like what you're saying, we've got two problems. Well, okay, we have a bunch of problems. Yeah, we have a bunch of problems. Two big buckets of problem. One is that now politicians need to spend much of their time fundraising and thinking about fundraising, which means they spend less time doing whatever it is they're actually supposed to be doing. And secondly, all of that fundraising is going towards candidates who can get a lot of money by being incredibly annoying. That's how you get Marjorie Taylor Greene, who actually is a massive fundraising bonanza because she says insane things, then sends an email about how the left wants to cancel her. <laughs> but Mika, you responded to Tim's argument here and called it taking a flamethrower to the entire landscape of online fundraising. So what's your problem with the case that Tim makes? Well, I have a number of problems. I don't disagree that we absolutely thought in the early days of the internet that the ease of you know donating money online would democratize the system. And then we'd finally get a politician who could tell the American people the truth about corporate power. And I would argue that actually on the left, that is what small donor fundraising that Tim is worried about has actually enabled. If you look to see who is raising the largest percentage of their money in small donations, meaning the amounts under $200. It's people like Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Katie Porter. I don't think any of these people are the same kind of toxic, racist populists that Tim is correctly worrying about on the right, who are absolutely tapping into this beast and feeding it at the same time with the most outrageous, provocative, attention-getting things that they can do. But I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Isn't part of that argument that, like, it's good when AOC or Katie Porter do it, and it's bad when Marjorie Taylor Greene does it? Like, is the heart of your disagreement, is the trade-off worth it? Sending $5 to Marjorie Taylor Greene 
and sending $5 to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are, ju- are both small donations. Yes. It's just, who are you donating to? Yes. And then what do those leaders choose to do with the freedom that the money gives them? You know, Tim and I are both worried about the same thing, I think. We're in a very dangerous time in our country. And so to me, I think the problem is, is that we have a unhealed wound in this country that dates back to the Civil War and that we have had recurring cycles where opportunistic politicians decide to feed on the prejudices and on the warped beliefs of people who think that this was supposed to always be a white Christian country and then use that to power their political careers. The fact that the internet now enables some people like a Marjorie Taylor Greene to, you know, self-finance as it were, because she doesn't have to worry if every Fortune 500 company in the country decides to stop donating money to her. So I think that there's a deeper problem, which is why do we have 30% of the population that wants this insanity and will fund politicians who give it to them? So part of the problem, though, with with saying, okay, well, the only problem is that small dollar fundraising is empowering these white nationalist lunatics, is that it leads to mistaken ways to address the problem. Like, for example, you know, it was mostly the left and progressives in H.R. 1 that wanted to incentivize small dollar donating. And just to cut in for a sec, H.R. 1 is the voting rights bill that would require super PACs to disclose their donors publicly and create a public funding match for small dollar donations. Correct. Part of the H.R. 1 reforms is that they were going to put money back in that would double or triple or whatever it was, the donations that were made by small dollar donors. Right. And I was sitting there as like a centrist, democracy-promoting fellow (laughs) saying, like, this is insane. Like, the liberals want to pass a bill now through Congress that is going to 2x or 3x Marjorie Taylor Greene's small dollar fundraising or Paul Gosar's or any of these people, J.D. Vance. Like, that is lunacy. No, that, that, to me, that's democracy. We we need to just stop glorifying grassroots donors as like, this is some great thing in service to democracy, when it might be the thing that ends our democracy, Uh, and recognize that while there may be some good qualities to it, it is not an unadulterated good, while big donors are an unadulterated bad, which is still kind of the conventional wisdom that I was trying to burst. So at an earlier point in my career, I actually worked on this issue of campaign finance reform for a group called Public Campaign, which advocated for full public financing of candidates who could demonstrate a base of support from small donors. What's in H.R. 1 is a variation on that. And we passed that kind of law in states like Maine and Arizona. And absolutely, we saw more candidates running who traditionally could never run for office because they were working class. They were waitresses. They were the sort of people who couldn't afford the time off and they didn't have a law firm, you know, giving them a cushy no-show job so they could run for office. So you got more women, you got more minorities running for office. We also saw more people from the Christian right who have grassroots support. I guess my question to you, Tim, would be if we're not going to let ordinary people have more say in the decisions that affect them, how would you run our campaigns? Because It sounds to me like what you would prefer is we go back to the days where just big donors figured out who was viable, and we would end up with a system that's very pro-business. I mean, Mitch McConnell, I think, would love that system if he could get it. 
Is that what you're actually saying you're for? Well, I, I do think that's a preferable system to our current system. That isn't the system that I would design starting from scratch, but I, I think that the... I, I want to yeah. jump in here because I do think that the larger question is that, Mika, you're sort of begging here is, do we want elite gatekeepers choosing our politicians? Yes. Are we going to... I'm going to make one more historical reference and then I am done. <laughs> do we want to return to like Tammany Hall or something like that, which would require a lot of changes in our politics and probably more drinking? <laughs> So as the Internet grassroots donation was coming of age, so to speak, the Supreme Court issued Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission in 2010, Mm. which overturned longtime election spending restrictions and told us essentially corporations are people, my friend, which now the right is very mad about. Very mad. The woke corporations are not people, my friend. Only the greedy corporations are people, my friend. (laughs) It's hard to keep track. Walmart is bad now. But corporations have the right to use their money as free speech to support candidates. It also ushered in the age of super PACs, which are independent political action committees that can raise unlimited sums of money from corporations, unions, and individuals that can't contribute to or coordinate directly with parties or candidates. So, Tim, when I asked if we wanted elite gatekeepers, you answered very quickly, yes. Who do you think should be those elite gatekeepers? I mean, the elite gatekeepers, they aren't good in general. Having no gatekeepers is bad, but also sometimes having gatekeepers is also bad. I get it. We're comparing bad options. Mm. I was being a little cheeky when I said quickly, yes. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, yeah, we could use some gatekeeping. I'm thinking of the UK last week as they're going through their different prime ministers. And, you know, we can laugh at the silliness of Liz Truss and the lettuce and Boris Johnson getting kicked out. But it's like, it's kind of nice that their system has a lot of gatekeeping and has some elite control. Like, we don't really have to Mm. be concerned that a white nationalist game show host was going to replace Liz Truss as the prime minister of England. So this is not, you know, me arguing that we should move to a parliamentary system, but it's just an allegory about the the value of having some level of gatekeeping among, among elites. And I think there are a lot of different reforms we could consider that might disincentivize the power of small dollar fundraising, you know, going to the most extreme candidates. There's things like ranked choice voting and, Mm -hmm. you know, a jungle primary system. I'd support that. But I also just think that the reality is because of Citizens United, which I do think has had pernicious effects in our politics, no doubt. But because that ruling exists, and because I don't think the court is changing anytime soon and that will continue to exist, like we have to face the reality of creating a political system that is the best of bad options. And I think that the reformers are always moving more towards this system that I think is going to empower the crazy candidates even more. And what I'm saying is there's nothing wrong with looking at reforms like why can't we increase the amount of money that politicians can raise but also you know, increase the transparency requirements on people that engage in politics at least if we knew where all of the money was coming from in these campaigns, that would uh, allow for a different type of accountability. And it would allow for maybe changing the power centers back towards such a place where responsible politicians who want to get things done can raise big money without having to demagogue and without having to rely on you know some of these other tools that I think are having a negative impact on our political life. up argument friends next week's episode will be recapping election results with ross douthat and michelle coddle so expect our episode in your feed by the end of the day wednesday see you there and tell everyone you know to go vote and then go vote
You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1. Because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. I was thinking about with regard to Tim's piece, and I think you've talked about this before, is the nationalization of local politics and races. Mm. Do you think that internet donations, grassroots donations, enable out-of-staters to dictate who makes it in local races and also dictate what races get attention? Like, I think about people from all over the country donating to Amy McGrath's 2020 Senate campaign against Mitch McConnell because they hate Mitch McConnell and because Amy McGrath had an ad with a fighter jet. Yeah. And I just keep thinking, like, there were other races that were probably closer that did not get nearly as much attention as that race or Jamie Harrison's race against Lindsey Graham. And I keep thinking, like, it's not that, like, you shouldn't try to go against established politicians, but it's that, like, the nationalization of local politics is coupled with these kind of grassroots fundraising. I think that it kind of distorts our politics. But I'm curious what you think, Miha. No, I, I don't disagree with that. And and I do think that, you know, candidates, especially for these high profile races, have an incentive to try and build a national following to help them offset whatever weaknesses they may have locally. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. We're going to have an interesting test of this coming up in New York State, by the way. You know, the same bad reformers that Tim was sort of criticizing before. Well-intentioned. Yes, well-intentioned, but, uh, you know, (laughs) who knows what the consequences will be. We are getting a public financing matching system, very similar to the one that they were trying to pass in Congress. We're getting that here in New York State starting in the next cycle. As that legislation was being crafted, one of the things that they did, which I think will make it interesting for everyone to watch, is they tried to ensure that outside money wouldn't get rewarded so that the matchable donations have to come from within the district. So we'll see how this plays out. I just, I have to interrupt you. I just yeah. do enjoy as a former, my former Republican is coming out here. I do <laughs> enjoy the big reform in New York is that politicians have decided that they're going to use tax dollars to give their own campaigns more money. <laughs> you know, it's good that you haven't lost all your DNA. The, the thing about that talking point is that somebody's got to pay for campaigns. And the question is whether you want wealthy special interests to pay for campaigns or whether you want us to pay for campaigns. It's like we pay for elections. You know, we pay people to run elections. We pay for the voter registration system. If we're going to get back to something that's worth trusting that can govern, 
then we've got to decide that we, the public, have to pay for this. And yes, that does mean that some politicians are going to get money for their campaigns who I disagree with, but you've got to live with that because the alternative is oligarchy. And that's kind of what we have now. Again, I just I don't think that we really want to see the unintended consequences of what you're saying, because I was just at a Kerry Lake Masters rally in Arizona. And I'm just telling you that the people that show up to those events, I don't know that we want the taxpayers subsidizing their donations. But they're okay? already there Is that because of lack of trust in institutions or, or because of elite capture or whatever, that these folks are participating in these campaigns like they're participating in these campaigns because there is a deep well of grievance that is being exacerbated by the politicians these politicians know how to press these folks buttons they know how to continue in this long con that donald trump has been running and if you just look at the types of republican candidates that are raising money online it is the most dangerous ones and the most Mm -hmm. willing to stir up this animus online and so i don't it's not that i'm pro-oligarchy, but the best case scenario we have is a highly transparent system that does not put limits on what can be financed and that voters and opposing politicians have to hold those who are corrupt accountable. I just think that given what you said about the fact that the getting money out of the system is impossible because of Citizens United, because of free speech in this country, because of the way our system is set up, I think returning to that is the best of bad options. Hmm. But I I think that it seems like a little bit of a paternalistic argument because voters either like these candidates or they are sending people specifically to irritate you and me and probably you also, Mika. So so much of this seems to be that voters are making decisions with their vote and with their money, and we do not like those decisions. Well... I I guess I just would push back on that because I think that the specific system that we have incentivizes the politicians, particularly on the right, to radicalize their own voters by sending them messages that inflames them so that they can raise the money and get the public profile necessary to, you know, get on Fox and continue this kind of doom cycle. And so, yes, there's a little bit of a paternalistic element to it. And and I just I'll admit it. I, I do think that having some more checks you know, on a system is a good thing. I think getting rid of all of our checks over time has proven to be a mistake. But that said, I don't think it's like, oh, voters are bad. We got to protect ourselves from bad people. I think that the new system that we have incentivizes bad behavior. It incentivizes bad behavior among a constituency that has already been primed and built to want that behavior. And even before we had online small donor donations, we already had the bad behavior. I mean, Newt Gingrich, who arguably started us down this path of inflammatory, toxic politics and demonizing the other side, he did very well with small donations. And that's all in the 1990s before the internet came along. You know, we're dancing around the harder problem, which is what can we do to out-compete and defeat the kind of rancid, toxic, racist populism? Fascism is a word that some people use. How do you out-compete that? What we see on the Democratic side is a political incumbent class led by people like Nancy Pelosi, who are just lurching from crisis to crisis, 
screaming, the sky is falling, and if you don't give me $27 right now, you know, we're not going to save anything, which is demoralizing to Democrats. And what they fail to do is invest in building an alternative that can match what the right has at the grassroots level. I think part of the deeper problem is on the right, you have a very dense social infrastructure of evangelical churches, of gun clubs. You know, there are more gun clubs in America than there are McDonald's who are on a daily and weekly basis reinforcing this paranoia, reinforcing this sense of a grievance and and privilege. And the left used to have labor unions, but labor unions are on their backs. They've been under attack for decades from corporate power. And so at the social level where the rubber hits the road and people develop and and get a political identity that's reinforced, the Democrats have nothing to match what the Republicans have. So, Mika, we have this problem. Right. And your piece pushed for a return to retail politics. But what does that look like? Well, after the 2020 election, the Republican National Committee decided to invest in a series of ethnic community centers. So they are funding Black and Latino community centers in places like Florida and Texas. They are offering classes in financial literacy. They are offering movie nights. They're offering bilingual programs. They're even offering uh, classes for people who are in the process of trying to pass their naturalization test. And honestly, I look at that and I go, that's brilliant. I mean, that's a party that wants to grow and it sees opportunities and it realizes that the way you do it is by investing in place-based retail year-round organizing. The bulk of money on the Democratic side is flowing to TV ads and digital ads, it's all very short-term. The word we use for it is sandcastles. They're just building every two years some sandcastles that'll get washed away as soon as the campaign is over and leave nothing lasting in those communities. When Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, he was on the way to rebuilding a grassroots base for the Democratic Party, but he only used it to get himself elected. He didn't keep it going. And the result is eight years later, the Democrats had lost something like a thousand seats in state legislatures. So I think something I I keep thinking about is the pure performativity of grassroots donations, about how you're not just getting grassroots donations. You're telling everybody about how you're getting grassroots donations, because that's how politics works. Because part of, to me, I don't want to say danger, but part of a concern that I have with how we do grassroots fundraising is that the grassroots part becomes the point of emphasis rather than what you're actually fundraising for. I'm not convinced of what that signals. Like, is it to me, it sounds a little bit like populism washing. Like, yeah. we're using money in a way to replace, in place of the people's voice or saying that you're the people's candidate. Like, just because you got a lot of small donations does not mean you're actually speaking on behalf of the populace. I think you're right. I, you know... If I could wave a wand, I think the thing that's missing here is any kind of umpire or, for argument's sake, a consumer reports version of, you know, helping donors evaluate their choices because they take it all very seriously. And people are throwing their money around emotionally rather than strategically. And the one thing that we have to talk about is 
the lack of political literacy that many small donors, unfortunately, you know, don't have. They aren't necessarily getting that much useful information from the media either, you know, to help them be more literate about how their money could be better spent. And we do need some, I don't know if you would call it a gatekeeper, but I do think in my fantasy, you know, you could go to a website, it would look up all of your past donations that you had actually made, and it would tell you, uh, you know, where did you spend your money well and where did you completely waste it? Because you gave it to somebody who had no chance of winning and you just hated their opponent. After my Times article, I did hear from a friend who's in Democratic fundraising who said, your column is all the rage right now on the ethical fundraising slack. And I was like, okay, the Republicans <laughs> do not have an ethical fundraising slack. Okay, they're, 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 that, is not, that is not a concern on the right, that there's a group of fundraisers getting together. So kudos to folks who are thinking about this. Call it gatekeeping, call it not. I like the Consumer Reports model. I do think there's certain things that could be changed. We could have more oversight from the FEC. And the FEC has been gutted. They're not doing anything. Mm. There should be rules. I wrote about the box that automatically checks making your donation recurring. Spam. I like Politicians do send spam in ways that we would never allow corporations to do spam, that there are laws against it. So I, I think that there are just practical laws in a consumer reports kind of vein that could make some changes around the edges at minimum. Yeah, I think that the hard thing for people is if they've done something stupid, getting them to admit that it was stupid is really, really hard um, because you get emotionally invested in your choices. Yeah. And so, you know, I've been thinking about all those people who have been suckered by Trump, who gave him, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that he didn't spend on trying to undo the election, but just, you know, have gone into his campaign pockets or spent on God knows what, Eric's latest safari or something. Um, can you go to people like that and say, hey, you know, how many more times do you want to be a sucker when you realize that, you know, they were scamming you and signed you up for multiple donations when you meant only one? Does anybody learn from this? I don't know. I don't know. Is Or is it just the con is so strong and once you've fallen for it, it's even harder to emotionally pull yourself out? Mika, Tim, thank you for making the small donation of your time and arguments to me today. Your donation will be quadruple matched. Right. Nice. Act now. Thank you, Jane. Thanks a lot. Tim Miller is a writer at large for The Bulwark and the author of the book, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. Miha Sifri is the author of The Big Disconnect, Why the Internet Hasn't Transformed Politics yet. He writes the Connector newsletter about democracy, technology, and social movements. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Fashaka Jirba, and Derek Arthur. Edited by Alison Bruzek and Animal Bacon. With original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker, and mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Mary Marge Locker, and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuelewski. Listener.